This is episode 13. You're listening to the All Hazards Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to give you exclusive access to emergency managers who've been on the front lines of some of the nation's most difficult challenges. Where we have candid conversations about the challenges facing all emergency managers, no matter how big or small the community. Here's your host, Sean Boyd. This time on All Hazards, put yourself in the position of having to manage a disaster for which you have no plan, no playbook. That's what happened for those dealing with California's drought, which is now in its fifth year. The town of East Porterville was the drought's epicenter. Thousands of wells went dry there, leaving families without water to drink or bathe with. So we talked with the man who was on the front line of this slow-moving disaster, Tulare County Emergency Manager Andrew Lockman. He admits this one taught him a lot just what a disaster can look like, what the role of an emergency manager can be, and how to look beyond short-term solutions for long-term sustainable ones. Oh, and get this, there is a silver lining to this drought. We'll talk about that and a whole lot more right now. Andrew Lockman, thanks for having us here in your office today. Uh, You got some good air conditioning going on in here. It's very warm out there. Uh, not as hot as it has been, but uh, upper 90s, pushing 100, hot enough for me. Now, looking at the past couple of years, um, you didn't want me to mention the word, the D word, drought, but I have to mention it. Uh, specifically, what I wanted to do was talk to you about how things have changed since the drought became an emergency. Looking back from the moments that we saw changes in water levels, in the number of wells that were going dry, the the efforts that both the county and the state have put forth, um, and where things sit today. Um, today, obviously a summer coming out of a winter that had a little more rain because of El Nino, um, but not as much rain as we had hoped that we were going to get, right? How much rain did you guys get here? For sure, walking around, driving around, you know, things look a little greener than they did a year ago. Um, what have you seen change over the last year? Um, you know, over the last year, what, what we've seen is really more of a trend of um, stabilization, um, status quo. Um, in 2014, 2015, we were seeing a dramatic increases in the number of dry wells, um, very little by way of people actually getting um, resolution to those by a new well drill. Really, what we've seen um, since the end of 2015 and into 2016 so far is um, basically a leveling off. There's still some some churn under the surface of the number of dry wells, but stays largely the same. Um, the tank program that we've had out there has largely the same number of clients that it did um, six or eight months ago. Now um, we're we're seeing less wells going dry. We're seeing more um, folks getting um, a solution to that, getting new wells drilled. Um, the backlog doesn't seem to be there for drillers anymore. We're starting to see, I think, more hope. We're seeing more um, long-term solutions coming through as well as, you know, it takes time for assistance to roll out. Um, but some of the governor's packages and some of the federal packages um, have rolled out. There's programs now available, such as the Drop Housing Relocation Assistance through um, California Department of 
community development um, as well as um, several programs through the Department of Water Resources, the State Water Resources Control Board. Um, you know, probably one of the biggest, uh, most visible changes for us is the construction of the East Portland Water System. Um, it, it's been conceived for the last couple of years as, hey, we need to build a water system out here. Um, but we actually now have some reality behind that. We actually have plans. Pipes are going to go here. We know who's going to connect. They've signed their agreements. Um, they've agreed to be annexed into the city at some future date once the city expands out there. Um, and we actually have some construction plans drawn up going out to contract, and it's really happening. Um, so people are seeing, hey, things are really happening. We've, we've put new wells in. We've been delivering these um, interim solutions, these um, permanent solutions, and there's more of that coming. So I think it's um, a, a feeling we're, we're still in response, but it's starting to feel a little bit more like recovery now than, than um, response like has for the last couple of years. It has been no easy task to get to this point. Uh, last year, um, when we were out here hand-delivering of bottles of water, uh, there was a lot of conversation, and I'm putting that nicely, between the county and the locals, the city of Porterville, um, NGOs, you name it. Everybody was trying to work together to come up with some long-term solutions, while at the same time trying to give some immediate relief. Um, tell me about the process that you went through to get some success and some agreements between the city of Porterville, uh, the county, uh, East Porterville. That was, uh, tell us how difficult that was.
pain point there in between, but we're, hopefully we're leaving this better than we found it when the Browns ball started. So for those who don't know the difference uh, between Porterville and East Porterville, describe to them, sort of paint the picture for them about the two communities that are side by side um, and why East Porterville was affected while Porterville wasn't. So right now, uh, the county and uh, the state are both trying to bring awareness to those communities that are uh, that have been out of water, that they now have an opportunity to tie in to the city water, which hasn't been laid yet, but it's going to be uh, construction starting soon, if not already, depending on when this airs. Um, 
getting that, how important is it to get that awareness out to these people that they need to sign the form that says, yes, we're going to tie in. So what would it cost them if they had to, if they didn't, if they didn't uh, uh, tie into this now and they decided 10 years from now that they wanted to do it right now, what would be the cost of something like that? Well, Andrew, you may not want to give up your 
use um, that you're going to have to pay later if you decide you want to become part of the system, and we would encourage you to do that now while it's free to you. Um, so it, it's not just a black and white decision. There's there's some difficult conversations that are going on with folks, um, certainly within their households, and we're having them with them. We're trying to be very candid, very forthcoming, and explain to them they have this window of opportunity. It's not unlimited. This has been a brutal five years of drought. Um, as an emergency manager, what has it taught you? It's taught me a lot. Um, before I came into emergency management, I was in uh, law and fire. Um, it, it's taught me that there's a whole lot more to emergencies than just the red lights and sirens, go squirt the water on the fire, and fire take the bag out of jail, and you're done. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole lot more politics here. Um, there's a whole world of um, groundwater that it's a discipline onto itself. Um, and it, it's really um, from my horizons personally as to what constitutes an emergency, what um, what the role of an emergency manager um, can be. It, you know, we, we all know that it's dynamic. Um, how dynamic it, it was, you asked me five years ago, I never would have thought that I would be dealing with uh, groundwater day in and day out. Um, same thing with now tree mortality, all the dead trees in the Sierras Diplomacy? Diplomacy, yes. Um, maybe not my strongest suit. Um, I can just kind of tell it how it is sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, certainly the, the need for diplomacy and um, sometimes the need for a, a neutral third party to intervene. Certainly, if you know, local agencies aren't getting along, the state coming in and brokering has, um, has been valuable. Um, it's also, um, I think, highlighted to me the need for government at all levels to be very flexible. Um, and you know, some of the things that we've been working with the state on when this first started. Lots of different programs out there that were very um, siloed or pigeonholed into from a very specific um, niche kind of need. For example, the, um, the cleanup and abatement camps in the State Water Resources Control Board. It was just disadvantaged communities within their borders, um, you know, very defined communities or water systems, and we we're able to, to kind of blow that out to you know, anybody that's disadvantaged that may have groundwater contamination and cover most of the county. And now we have 1,700 households getting bottled drinking water from them. They went from a $4 million a year to, I believe it was 19 or even $25 million a year program now um, due to the success of that. Once we got over that square peg round hole issue, we got conceptual buy-in of, hey, we want to use it this way. It's within the legislative intent. Will you work with us and let us pilot it and showing that that kind of solution works? Um, just the, the importance of perseverance there, the importance of um, you know collaborating with the state agencies and federal agencies and not just taking the, the first answer but really showing here's the need, here's how we can how we can bridge some of the gap. Um, so there, there's a ton of lessons there to go on forever. Uh, but we, we've learned a ton from this experience. The biggest challenge for you, the thing that kept you awake at night the most, and it looks like <laughs> I'm trying to think of which one. Um, yeah, yeah. There's been a few, I'm sure. But if there's one if you thinking back and, and the one that kept you awake the most, I mean and how you got past it, how, how you were able to meet that challenge. I think the, the biggest one for me was in the initial days, um, just trying to get people to report. Um, it, you know, it, 
if you need an ambulance, you need a fire truck, you know to call 911. If your well goes dry and you're living without water, there's really no pre-programmed response for that. So just trying to get out there and let people know that there's people looking at this and we want to hear from you and understand your problems so we can get a handle on it. Um, and you know, that, that directly played into making the case to get California Disaster Assistance Act money through Cal OES. Um, you know, it, it was heartbreaking to look at um, the numbers as they first started coming in and saying, well, we, we don't have a response for this. We don't really have a, a plan. If you have an emergency operations plan that's your, your general framework, um, and I'm sure everybody has, you know, wildfire and alert and warning and evacuation, all these other contingencies, but I've never seen a drought contingency that says when you have X number of homes with private wells go dry, go do these things. So we, we had to make it up on the fly. That's not really a position you want to be in. Mm. Um, so that, that was challenging and just trying to get to the point where I could actually uh, make some response actions happen. Um, and, you know, some of the, some of the biggest challenges um, in that, some of them just getting people to report was actually cultural. Um, I was going to say, a lot of them may be a little suspicious of government. There's, there's a lot of folks that are very suspicious of government, um, especially in these disadvantaged communities. Um, we have a very high undocumented population, um, and then some urban um, legends started, which were not completely false, but they started as, oh, if you call the county, they will come take away your children just because you have a, a lack of running water. Um, they will come red tag your house. Um, you'll get reported to immigration. You'll get deported. Um, so it was the lesser of two evils that they were choosing right. um, in their mind. And what we've, what we've tried to do is we've tried to put the message out there of we're, we're not here to hurt you, we're here to help you. Um, and that, that's a very difficult message to sell because they don't know you and they don't trust you as far as they can throw you at that point. Um, so what, what we've actually found, um, maybe one of the, even the biggest lessons coming out of this was really the importance of engaging um, partners, trusted partners in the community, whether it's individuals um, such as Donna Johnson, um, whether it's nonprofit organizations um, such as CSET, our Community Service Employment Training um, Group that's out in communities doing weatherization, doing job training. Um, but, you know, finding these, these partners that the community already interacts with and trusts um, and finding those folks out there to, um, to be our spokesperson or be an intermediary even. If people will talk to them and they can talk to us, that's fine. Um, and then, again, putting out that message ourselves of we're here to help you, we're not going to get you deported, we're not going to ask about your, your citizenship status, and then really putting our money where our mouth is. And I think after, after about six months or so, certainly now after about two years, we've, we've put our money where our mouth is, um, and people really have that sense of, okay, the government's here to help me, but I, I trust that this is not going to be a bad thing. Um, we still, obviously, we still have to educate them, and they may not always be happy with the some of the facets of how that assistance comes to them, like they don't want to abandon their wells. Um, but again, I think we've, we've surmounted and overcome that challenge, um, and, and that's a good feeling. And there's still more challenges to come. I think the biggest one right now that we're still working on is um, how do we help people? Um, how do we help people get a permanent solution that are outside of um, outside of the area where we can do an infrastructure project? Um, all the money right now is infrastructure, 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 building water systems. Um, that doesn't do anything for the homeowner that doesn't have anybody within a mile radius of them. Um, there's never going to be a system. There's always going to be on a private well. Um, how do we help them? So we're, we're still trying to, to advocate on that front for things like um, well interest loans or grant opportunities, um, changing some of the rules on um, state and federal programs, um, 
things like the household water well systems um, grant, great program conceived by USDA, has an $11,000 per household limit and $100,000 per county cap, um, which means that I can give nine households half a well each. Um, great intention, not the greatest implementation, square peg round hole, we're still trying to trying to massage that a little bit to meet the current challenges. So th there's still some work to be done, um, but you know, we're, I think we're, we're getting there and we were a lot stronger as a community before. We've got a couple of minutes left, final thoughts. Andrew, appreciate it, man. Thanks for letting us come by and uh, take up your time. And the taps have been turned for the first flow of clean city water in East Porterville. That happened on Friday, August 19th. And there were smiles all around when that water came pouring out of the faucet at the Ramirez household. We've linked to that story on our website, oesnews.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll subscribe. I'm Sean Boyd. Thanks again for checking in. We'll talk to you next time. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.